What if God is angry, but what if that anger is actually good for us? Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. In this series, we're basically stepping back. We're zooming out so that we can see the Bible as a whole. And from that, we can get the big story of God that runs through the Scripture. We're looking at the major people, the places, the events, the story that God is writing. That's what we're looking at. Now, because we call uh, this thing the Bible, we look at it and we often see it as just this giant book full of rules for us. That's what we see so often. Or we might just say, well, it's a collection of teachings that may or may not have to do with my life. But this is an incredible story that we're looking at about a God who is passionate and relentless to pursue his creation. Now, last week we went all the way back to the very beginning And we discovered that God created a world and God said it was good and it was beautiful and it was filled with opportunity for adventure. It was teeming with life and he created everything, called it good and actually all of that good creation reflected back and was like, hey, the creator is good. We realized last week that if we could could see within this story where we come from, then perhaps we can see more clearly where we are going in this story. We understand that we were created by a good God, someone who's bigger than us, and he created us for a story that is larger than our own personal stories. However, we also begin to learn that at an early age, we learn this, something went wrong. Something went wrong. As we look back at events Uh, Like last week in Las Vegas, those mass shootings, it's easy for us to see something went wrong in God's creation. But more than that, I mean, many of us can even recognize brokenness in our own lives, and we can recognize that usually starting back from a very young age. I admitted something recently to a couple of my kiddos. I need you to, uh, to understand this. You're going to have to place yourself kind of around the the seventh grade, if you're going to understand what I'm getting ready to tell you. So think back with me, place your mind at at the state that you were in as a seventh grader, sitting in church as a seventh grader. Now, when I was in church as a seventh grader, we always sat down towards the front as teenagers. We would sit in one giant gaggle of of teens kind of down in the front because it was kind of exciting. It was an exciting place. Exciting things were going on and we had an exciting student ministry. It it was kind of fun. We, We liked it. We sat down in the front. Now, I was sitting down there this particular Sunday. I wanted to be engaged what was going on. Um, I I wanted to, but sadly this day I was just bored out of my mind. There wasn't much mind there. Didn't take me long to get bored out of my mind. But I was bored. I wanted to be gripped by what was happening. I was not. Instead, I often found myself doing things like this. I would take the worship guide, and I would take my pen and fill in all the B's and all the D's, anything that was a closed letter, and I would fill it in. I worked my way all the way through the worship guide. Sometimes, if I was bored, um, I would count the lights You know, I would count those. Sometimes if I was bored, I would count the lights reflecting off of the bald heads in front of me. I would count the bald heads. 
Sometimes I would just simply watch the, the preacher, the, the, the pastor, and I would watch for spitballs to fly out of his mouth while he was talking. If he got a little worked up, oh, there went one. That was a good one. Pew! I would try to see where it landed. But not this day. This particular day, actually, I wasn't doing any of those things. I was actually on this day, I was working on an art project. Um, uh, specifically, it was an elephant, um, specifically. Dustin's going to, there we go. It was very much like this. This was the beginning. I recreated this the other day for you at Starbucks. Um, this is the beginning of that art project. And um, more specifically than an elephant, I was actually working on the rear end of an elephant. So the next picture will kind of show you how that, there, it's kind of developing. That's that's my art project, very much like it was back in the seventh grade. I was trying to be very realistic for you. That's pretty much what it looked like. Um, but then I saw a perfect ending to the rear ending of my elephant. And I, I, in my Bible, I had a bookmark. And I don't know if you remember the old type of bookmarks, just kind of a little plastic thing. But it usually had like this string, this thread cord coming off of it. And it had a tassel on the end. And, and so I thought, if I could just poke a hole in the rear end of my elephant... And I could thread this wondrously creative tail through. Then that's kind of what it looked like there. Thank you, Dustin. That's that's what it looked like. That was it. Um, and you see, that's uh, the tassel for my bookmark. But this is what I did not foresee. Now, this is where it is critical that you think with me for a moment as a seventh grader. As I pulled that bookmark tassel through the piece of paper, the, actually it was our, wor- our bullets and our worship guide, as I pulled it through, the tassel at the, the, the point where it becomes a string um, had a knot tied there, which means once it hit the knot on the paper, the tail reacted to that. And so when I pulled it through, the tail and it, the knot hit the paper, the tail arched, And it went up as if this elephant creation of mine were going to drop a load, go to the bathroom. And so as a seventh, here's the, that's exactly what it did right there. I mean, wow. Think with me as a seventh grader. That's what happened. And in that moment, that is all my small, for me, not for you, I'm sure, but my small junior high mind, that's all I could take in that moment as that tail jettisoned outward. I began this giant, shaking, earth-moving convulsion. I was trying not to laugh out loud, so it was all being contained in my tiny junior high body, but yet it was enough for me to shake the entire 15-foot pew that I was sitting on, and I was trying to hold back these spurts of laughter. It was everything I could take. Every once in a while, they eked out, and it was audible. I was squeaking, actually, right about in here. It was horrible. I mean, I felt so bad. I was embarrassed. It was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I'm so thankful my parents actually had mercy on me. You know, mercy means I did not get what I deserved. I deserved to be punished for that. I didn't. They had mercy on me. And in fact, what my parents did give me was grace, which that means I, I got something that I didn't deserve. And they gave me grace. They gave me forgiveness for that. 
there is another aspect, though. Sometimes in life we get mercy. Sometimes we get grace. But sometimes we get discipline. <laughs> um, this, this is discipline. Now, for, for you young folks, you teenagers, this is a paddle. You spell it P-A-D-L. Paddle. Um, it's a broken paddle because the way it worked at my school, the behind it gets broken upon, then they get to own the paddle. So this is mine forever now. <laughs> Dear to my heart. Here's how, this, here's how I got the paddle. Um, ninth grade, so two years after I drew the elephant rear end, um, two years later, I'm sitting in my freshman civics class, and I don't know about you know today, but in the 80s, if your teacher was a coach in civics, it means you didn't do anything. I don't know about today. That's no commentary for today. That's just in the 80s. We didn't do anything except frequently, um, I mean, like we shot spitballs and stuff. I mean, we took our little ballpoint pens and emptied out all the stuff, and it was the perfect spitball cylinder, and we used those. We shot spitballs actually across the room all the way to the other side at each other. We weren't shooting them at the coach, just each other. But the coach was trying to lead a discussion, and the spitballs were quite uh, interrupting. And so, anyway, um, several of us got lined up outside. And the way usually it worked is you would bend down and grab your ankles because that made all the skin good and tight, good and taut. And, um, and then they would grab the paddle, especially if it was a coach. They were really good at this. They got to do it a lot. Um, and anyway, so this broke on my backside. This day, I received discipline. Now, I think if we're to be honest, I think most times we receive some of all of that. We do get some mercy. We get some grace. And we also get some discipline. Now, let's review where we've been. We'll come back to all this in just a moment. Last week we covered that in the beginning God created with just the sound of his voice galaxies were hurled into orbit light began to beam and the heavens uh, had had life Water was there. It covered the earth. Valleys dug deep and the mountains sprung high. Birds flew in the air and the fish swam in the seas. Insects filled the ground and dinosaurs thundered across the land. And God said, it was good. But it only took us three chapters to mess it all up. As I said, we know that something is wrong in our world and sometimes in our lives from a very young age. We look around us and there are hurts, there are disappointments, there's unanswered questions, there's tragedy and conflict. And we look at that and we can't see a purpose in it and we can't see an explanation for it. And that might make us look around all of this and wonder if God even really exists. And if he does exist, how could he allow that to happen? How could he be good? 
We can't imagine how a good God could allow bad things to happen to good people. We cannot untangle all of that philosophical problem of the origin of evil in the world today. Now this morning we can't answer all of those questions, but we can perhaps discover this. When things broke in God's creation and why they broke, And most importantly, we can cling to hope in where we can find God in the midst of all of this brokenness, both then and now. So let's continue exploring this story. Surrounded by four rivers, God planted the garden. And in that garden, God placed man and he placed woman and he marked them both by the image of God, their storyteller their creator. God was present in that garden. They had community. It was perfect. And their life objective was simply this, a relationship with God. That was it. To worship God and enjoy him forever. That was their goal. And God gave them free reign in the garden. He told them to go and just live, have dominion, go name the animals, enjoy me, enjoy my creation, and enjoy a relationship with each other. And then God gave them food to eat. Here's where we pick this up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all sorts of trees that grew up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These two trees specifically that God mentions here. One of these two trees represents the goal. The goal being this, a life breathed by God, a life eternal, a life of perfect communion, a life of wholeness. That was the tree of life. That's the goal. But then there's a second tree that really represents the obstacle, the problem. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every character and every story that's ever been written or every life that's been experienced makes a choice. Sometimes, even the best characters with the best intentions confuse the obstacle tree with the goal tree. And in this moment, in this story, enter into the scene for the first time mentioned the villain, Satan. The thief of souls of men. He came crawling into the story on the ground as a serpent. And in this moment, he plants a seed of doubt into the mind and the heart of the woman by just simply saying, did God really say that? We read it in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say not to eat of the fruit of the trees? Any of the trees in the garden? Okay, let's just hit pause for a moment. Let's think about what we're reading. You probably have heard this many, many times in your life, and we can miss how bizarre this actually is. But remember, something from today, at least learn this. Don't talk to strangers, and don't talk to talking snakes. If it approaches, just don't. I got a uh, this picture right here. I, I, I don't know if you can see it, but there is a copperhead that is extending from the left to the right, going right through the middle of the picture. That's a copperhead. Um, best friend in Malvern, he sends me 
He's a text. He's like, ah, I killed a snake. I was like, hey, listen, you better not put that on Facebook because, listen, Facebook, it's, it's illegal in Arkansas to kill snakes. So he looks up the law and he says, no, 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 no. If it is threatening, you can. So then he shows me this picture. I don't know if you can see it, but right over here, right beside, right beside that, he's got a, a, a nine millimeter or um, a 44 or something, 45 sitting right on the snake. He was like, my snake was armed. I mean, it's okay. He was definitely a threat. He was armed. And besides that, he said, besides that, he was trying to get my wife to eat some fruit. I had to kill him. I had no choice. I had to kill him. So anyway, the serpent in this story, he says to Eve, he says, did God really, did God really say that? I mean, he didn't argue with God. He didn't accuse God. He didn't try to convince Eve of something, some different idea to do. He just planted the seed of doubt in her brain, implying this. Eve, you can't trust God. Are are you sure that God can be trusted? I mean, are, are you sure that you heard him correctly? Are you certain of your relationship and your standing with God? She explained to the serpent. She said, no, no, we can't eat that fruit or we'll die. And it goes on in verse 4. The serpent says, you you won't die? The serpent replied to the woman, God knows. Your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now remember... When we looked at the beginning of God's story, we see that God created a good world to reveal his goodness. And here in this moment, the serpent is causing Eve to question God's goodness. He didn't begin with temptation. He didn't try to make evil look attractive first. He didn't try to do any of that. He simply tried to plant the seed of doubt inside of Eve's mind, saying, God is not trustworthy. And then he convinced her this. Listen to this. He convinced her that God had withheld something good from her. Like he's holding back on you. That somehow, Eve, you are incomplete And unlike the rest of God's creation, God made a mistake with you. He didn't with the other creation, but he made a mistake with you. And he's not been completely good to you. So you were not made, Eve. You were not made completely good. So she would have to add something to herself to make her okay. And the enemy has been tempting us the same way ever since, ever since that point. Last week we mentioned this, an idea from a pastor um, a long time ago, A.W. Tozer. And he told us that what comes to our mind first when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do we actually believe that God is good? Do we actually believe that God is love? Do we believe that he is with us? Do we believe that he wants to be part of our lives? Do we believe that he created us 
on purpose and for a purpose. And the way we answer those questions will frame the way that we read the rest of God's story. And they'll also frame the way that we understand ourselves inside of this story. You see, if we don't, when we don't believe the right things about God, we make poor choices. And that's what happened to Eve in this moment. Let's go on. Verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, that the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. In this experience, embracing the wrong tree, the man and woman now reach out for the very thing that would cause them to forfeit the life they were created for. In this moment, they left their story, God's story. They left God's story and they went to pursue a story of their own making. They didn't just make a little mistake. They didn't just break a, a little rule. In this moment, they started a rebellion worldwide against the goodness of God. In this moment, sin entered the world. Now, for many of us, we don't like that word, sin. The word sin makes us uncomfortable. For some of us, we just think of religious fanatics who are pointing out, saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Sometimes we associate it just with other uh, theological words like hell or God's wrath. And all of those words, they all make us nervous. But let's pause for a moment. Let's think about what happened in that moment, and let's think about what that word actually means. This story is the tragic fall from goodness, from the goodness of God. The word sin is actually an archery term, and it simply means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. So it's as if there is a target... And there's a bullseye on the target, and it is to miss the mark. And in this case, the bullseye on the target is God's goodness. And when we make certain choices that's called a sin, that is an archery term. It means we have missed God's goodness. We've missed His mark. His mark is goodness. We've missed that. There's another definition of sin that's helpful. It's this. Sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Meeting a, a legitimate need, a God-given need in an illegitimate way. You see here the woman, she, she felt the need. She wanted to be good. She wanted to be complete. She wanted to be in God's image. But... She listened to and trusted the wrong voice. One moment of insecurity, one small decision, one thoughtless action, and she reached for the one thing that would result in her forfeiting paradise and perfection. And in that one moment, all hell broke loose. And then she turned and she gave some to Adam, who was standing with her the whole time, somewhere nearby at least. And he ate as well. 
He didn't complain. It wasn't, no, 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 you shouldn't have done that. No. He simply ate. And in this moment, sin, missing God's mark of goodness, caused a separation between God and his creation. In that moment, everything broke. But God did not abandon his creation. In fact, the Bible tells us he walked to his creation looking for Adam and Eve. And when he found them, they launched into this chain reaction of blame. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And then God begins to describe the new reality of their world that they would now be living in. For the next several verses, God explains the result of this fall. Sometimes these things, as you read them, they're called curses. But they really weren't so much arbitrary punishments that God's handing out because they did the wrong thing. These were actually more, it's easier to understand as natural consequences of choices. The natural consequences that happens when creation is separated from their creator, God. This is the natural consequence. He, he said, work is going to be more difficult for you men. He said, women will have pain in childbirth. He said, now also the man and woman will have problems in their relationship with one another. And boy, did that all happen. In this moment, that was the birthplace of brokenness. Why do bad things happen in the world? Disease, war, anger, death, natural disasters, hunger, relationship, pain. Why does all of that happen? All of those things flooded into the world when it was ripped away from God by sin. And the world has been aching to be reconciled to its creator since then. But the story didn't end there. In that moment of this greatest tragedy, we find a couple of very, very significant expressions of grace. Here's the first. Listen to this. Uh, let me read this verse. We'll draw a couple out of it. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and, and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, there's so much. I mean, you probably have heard that. And we just passed right over it. So much packed into those two verses. First, let's look at this very quickly. I find it absolutely astounding that in this moment... Adam named Eve. Up to this point um, in the story, she's just been referred to as the woman. She's been referred to as woman because she came from man. But now she's made a horrible decision. And her husband also made a horrible decision. And they've been banished from paradise. They have brought a, 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 what feels like this curse upon all humanity. And it is at this point that Adam pauses to give her a name. Now, Adam might have thought of any number of names that might be appropriate at this moment. And she probably thought of quite a few appropriate names for Adam as well. But when Adam named her, he did not name her for her sin. And he did not name her for her weaknesses or her flaws. Instead, in this moment, he named her for her potential. He named her Eve because she is becoming the mother of all humanity. In her darkest moment, 
he extended grace in the darkest moment he named her who she was created to be he found this glimmer of goodness this divine image remained of god and he highlighted it and in the midst of this darkness and this tragedy and this chaos adam named her not something that pointed to death, but a name that pointed to life. That was grace. But that's not the most shocking grace. The most shocking grace is found in that next verse, and it came from God himself in verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and for his wife. Now, God covered their nakedness. He covered it. But before his grace could cover them, God had to unleash his wrath. Stick with me for a moment. I know we don't like to associate wrath and judgment with God. We don't like to think of God as being judgmental. We don't like to think of God as being angry. But what if in this moment God was angry, but he was angry at the right things. And what if God's anger ultimately is good for us because it makes a way for us to be rescued, it makes a way for our redemption. Understand this, God is not angry at you, he's angry for you. For the very first time in scriptures, we see God's wrath manifested in this story, in this moment right here. Without God's anger and his wrath, there would have been no covering, no clothing. Listen, those animal skins had to come from somewhere. Something had to die for God to have those animal skins. Last week. We celebrated life, the life that God created. This week, sin entered into the world, into God's story. And this week, God's wrath is unleashed against part of that good creation. That animal had, that had to die was innocent. That animal that had to die was good. But that animal died in order to extend grace to Adam and Eve. His wrath, his anger, had to precede his grace. In fact, you could even say it activated it. It activated his grace. And in that moment, we see his grace and his love linked with that wrath. In his grace, he covered Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal so that they could stand before one another and stand before God without shame. Something innocent had to die in order for God to give them grace. Now we keep reading, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us. And it's so interesting. We talked about this last week. If you missed it, go back and listen to it on SoundCloud. 
God is referring to himself here, talking to himself here, and the pronouns he's using is us. It's, this is amazing. We talked about that last week. Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out now and take the fruit uh, from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord stationed mighty cherubim, that means more than one, after uh, he, he stationed the cherubim, to the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, just as it seemed to be getting better, as God was extending them grace and taking care of their shame, he now boots them out of the garden. It seems like it's getting worse again. God kicks them out. And he chooses a couple of angels to stand there and to, to, to guard the gate like a bouncer so nobody can get in. In your Bible, it might even describe that section as paradise lost or as God's judgment. And again, we don't like those words because we don't like to think of God as being judgmental. But what if God was good and he was a fair judge who wanted to actually restore the good that he originally intended in his creation? And that's what we're seeing. God sends Adam and Eve from the paradise. And he stations some angels there to make sure they cannot re-enter. So we ask, was God punishing them? Did he not want them to have fun anymore? Did he, did he, did he, is it like when you're a child and you're bad? A parent punishes you by taking away your favorite toy. Is that what's going on here? No. God did not abandon his creation. He didn't abandon Adam or Eve. He didn't stop writing his story. When they blew it, he didn't say, ah. He didn't throw the pin down and say, it's over. You're finished. It's done. You've ruined it. No. The key to understanding this lies in the mention of this other tree, the tree of life. And here's why. God was concerned that if Adam and Eve remained in the garden that they would also eat of the tree of life as well. And if they did, then they would live forever. Now, that sounds good to us. Oh, they would live forever. That might make things better, right? Wrong. They would live forever in their current state, the state they were in, forever separated from God hopelessly wandering this fallen paradise with no hope of redemption, no hope of reconciliation with their creator. God did not banish Adam and Eve from the garden as a punishment, but instead he did that as an act of grace. Maybe God was angry, but maybe he is angry at whatever threatens those that he loves. If God had not gotten angry in Genesis 3, then we today would still all be hopelessly wandering around this fallen paradise naked with no hope. And some of you this morning feel like that God is angry at you. You feel like you've messed up. You feel like you've done things that are unforgivable. 
or that you have fallen short what you know you should have done or you have done what you should not have done and that shame of all those action, maybe it feels like anger to you. The weight of all of that, maybe it feels like you have been shunned from God and from others. I want you to know this. That is a lie. That is far from the truth. There may be, yes, anger there, but it is anger that isn't directed at you. It is actually anger that benefits you. God is angry at the sin and at at what it does to us, to our lives, to the people around you. God is angry at that. God is angry at the sin that destroys the life that he has created you to live. Do you feel like that God is angry at you? Or can you begin to understand that God is angry for you? This snake may have outwitted Adam and Eve, but God God trumps the snake. We find this little glimmer of hope embedded in the curse that God pronounces over the snake, the serpent, Satan. Here's what he says in verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now this sounds very cryptic. But listen to what is going on here in this paragraph. God is now hinting at a new plan that is in the works. The moment Adam and Eve blew it, God begins a new plan in his story, a new chapter that is inserted and changes the story. Inside of this message, God is hinting at this new new plan. He's saying a day will come when the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent or of the evil one. Someday, God is saying, somehow I will send one who will ultimately and completely vanquish the enemy. You see, the story in this moment, when they blew it, the story was not over. The story had just begun. Spoiler alert right here. We're going to learn That God in this paragraph is pointing to the day when Jesus will show up on this earth. And while we see glimpses of his grace in the garden, we will see grace in human form in a few weeks as we see Jesus show up on the scene. And while we see wrath and grace show up together right here to demonstrate this perfect love of God in the garden, we will once again see grace and love and wrath all together when Jesus is on the cross. And we'll see that in a few weeks. But that's a story for another week. This is where we land today. God created a good world to reveal how good he is. Adam and Eve doubted the goodness of God. And in that moment, they traded paradise for a lie. And hell came to earth. Pain, disease, 
destruction, despair were all unleashed into this human history that we now experience. And all of us, no matter how old we are or where we've come from, we have experienced some of those things. And all of us are walking around with some unexplained hurts in our lives and unanswered questions about all of this. Genesis 3 tells us where we came from. Now, it does not adequately address all of the questions that we have in our life. No, it does not. But we can answer what might be the most important question that we are asking, and it is this. Where was God? When all of this happened, where was God in this? And here's the answer. He was there. He was there ready to cover them. He was there ready to protect them and ready to now throw a new twist into the story that he is writing. He was there. And God is still here today as well. Right in the midst of the pain, right in the midst of your confusion and the chaos of your life, God is still here. He is still good. And God is with you. And when God is present in the equation, we can find his grace. Let's pray. God, while this story is history, we have inherited this tendency in our lives to leave your story and to pursue our own. And God, in all of that, you never left us. In fact, when everything broke, you immediately initiated a plan to reclaim your creation. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for not taking your anger out on us, but rather taking it out on sin and the evil that separates us from you. God, thank you for loving us enough to not give up on us. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your one big story. And God, as we seek you this week, may we find you. Amen.